welcome to the July 31st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. A new WCAB panel decision concluded that represented workers are not required to repeat the QME procedural steps they took when they were unrepresented workers. In this case, Fernando Yanes claimed injury to his left knee while employed as a respiratory therapist by the Defendant Valley Children's Hospital. And the employer admitted the injury but contested the nature and extent. While Mr. Yanes, as an unrepresented worker, he requested a panel of orthopedic QMEs pursuant to Labor Code Section 4062.1 and the medical unit issued the panel. Mr. Yanes, however, did not have an evaluation as a result of that panel and later retained legal counsel who requested a replacement panel, this time with a specialty of chiropractic medicine. And the DWC medical unit went ahead and issued him a new QME panel in the specialty of chiropractic care. The employer objected to the new panel number on the grounds that the new panel request letter was procedurally deficient. So the parties proceeded to trial on the issue of the validity of the replacement panel request. And the work comp judge issued a finding an order invalidating the chiropractic panel and directing the parties to obtain a new panel of QMEs pursuant to 4062.2. But the WCAB granted a petition for removal filed by the applicant and substituted a new findings of fact that the QME chiropractic panel was valid and they rescinded the order that the parties obtain a new panel of QMEs in the case of Yanes versus Valley Children's Hospital. The applicant argued that the parties are not required to start all over and submit a new objection letter to that which has already been objected to in the first place when the original unrepresented panel was requested and that he was entitled to obtain a new panel of QMEs after obtaining legal representation because the evaluation process described in the code is a separate and distinct from the process for obtaining a panel. The WCAB panel concluded that once the parties have identified a medical dispute, the procedure for obtaining a panel of QMEs where applicant is not represented is governed by Labor Code 4062.1. And the parties at this point satisfied the procedure for obtaining a panel. The WCAB then noted a number of prior panel decisions that were consistent with this view. The parties were not thereafter required to reinitiate a dispute resolution process that was already underway and had appropriately resulted in the issuance of a prior panel. And in employment law, the Court of Appeal ruled that an arbitrator has no power to cure an employer's late payment of arbitration fees. In this case, Milan Zvijic worked for Skyview Capital, and he filed a lawsuit against them after his termination of employment 
alleging causes of action for employment law issues. His employment agreement with them contained an arbitration clause, so Skyview moved to compel arbitration, which the trial court granted, and the case then went before a panel of three arbitrators. The employer, Skyview, had to pay arbitration fees ahead of the hearing, and they were due on June 4, 2021. And the arbitration panel unilaterally set a new deadline of July 14th for payment of the fees. When Svijek's counsel discovered this, he wrote the panel to say that Svijek was withdrawing from the arbitration. The panel's chair responded that Svijek's request was premature, presumably because the deadline had been changed to July 14th, and Skyview ultimately paid its fee by that extended date. So, the worker filed an election to withdraw from arbitration now in the trial court, which the trial court granted, and then the employer appealed the trial court order to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal then affirmed the trial court in the published case of Svijic versus Seaview Capital, LLC. It said the legislature enacted section, a section of the Code of Civil Procedure in 2019 to curb a particular arbitration abuse where a defendant could force a case into arbitration but, once there, could refuse to pay the arbitration fees, thus effectively stalling the case in what the legislature called procedural limbo. The amendment added a new subdivision that any extension of time for the due date shall be agreed to by all parties. The Court of Appeal concluded by noting that the new law entitled Mr. Svijic to withdraw from the arbitration and the statute does not empower an arbitrator to cure a party's missed payment. And in disability law, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed to review a case en banc that will rule on a student versus the California State Bar Americans with Disabilities Act accommodation dispute. In this case, the student plaintiff was Benjamin Cohn. He was a law school graduate who registered to take the October 2020 sitting of the California Bar Exam. He had been diagnosed with several physical and psychological conditions, including autism and neurological attention disorders, digestive system conditions, and visual impairments. Mr. Cohn was previously taken, had previously taken the California Bar Exam in July 2018, February 2019, and February 2020. He did not pass them, but for each exam he was granted some testing accommodations by the bar examiners, but then denied others. On March 19, 2020, the new bar exam, Mr. Cohn submitted a petition for testing accommodations for the October 2020 exam and sought all accommodations that the committee had previously granted on his prior attempts at the California bar exam as well as all the accommodations that were previously denied by the state bar. And once again, the Committee of Bar examiner, Examiners granted some of his requests, 
but denied requests for administration of the exam over weekend days only, denied testing in a private room, pre-scheduled breaks to be taken instead of instead at Mr. Cohn's discretion, a complete ergonomic workstation provided by the committee, and a hotel room for Mr. Cohn provided by the committee, and the assignment of an experienced proctor. Because of that denial, Mr. Cohn filed a complaint in the Federal District Court alleging seven violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act and seven corresponding violations of the California Unruh Act, and his complaint was later amended to add a total of 15 claims. The State Bar argued that it was immune from the ADA claims because the 11th Amendment to the United States Constitution provides them immunity to to states and its agencies. Thus, the district court dismissed the cause of action with prejudice, and Mr. Cohn appealed the case to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the case has been briefed by the parties and the amicus. And pursuant to the federal rules, the Court of Appeals certified the case to the United States Attorney General to inform them that a constitutional challenge to a federal statute had been raised in a pending appeal in which the United States is not a party. And the case was argued in San Francisco and then submitted for decision back last February. However, on July 21, 2023, upon a vote of the majority of non-recused active judges, it was ordered that this case be heard on banc, and the on banc oral argument will now take place during the week of September 18, 2023 in San Francisco, California. The outcome of this case will be significant for all employers who are agencies of any state government. And now our crime report. Brian and Leslie Hill, the owners of a Bakersfield construction company, Brian Hill Construction Incorporated, are facing a $4 million payroll fraud charge. They have been charged with multiple felony counts of insurance fraud and conspiracy after a Department of Insurance investigation found the couple underreported over $4 million in employee payroll. The company had held workers' compensation insurance through the state fund and then through benchmark insurance. An audit showed that Brian and Leslie had failed to report over $4 million in employee payroll to their carriers over a three-year period and this resulted in the illegal reduction of about $2.6 million in premium owed to their respective insurance companies. The investigation also discovered one employee of Brian Hill Construction Incorporated was injured on the job and sent by the employer to a local hospital where he received minimal medical treatment. The Kern County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. And now, regulatory news. On August 1st, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services will publish a revised version of Form I-9 Employment Eligibility Verification. Among the improvements to this form is a checkbox that employers enrolled in E-Verify can use to indicate they remotely examined identity and employment authorization documents, 
under an alternative procedure authorized by the Department of Homeland Security. And on July 21st, DHS announced a final rule on its alternative procedure that now recognizes the end of the temporary COVID flexibilities as of July 31st and now provides DHS the authority to authorize optional alternatives for employers to examine Form I-9 documentation. At the same time, DHS also published an accompanying document describing and authorizing employers enrolled in E-Verify the option to remotely examine their employees' identity and employment authorization documents under a DHS-authorized alternative procedure. To participate in the remote examination of Form I-9 documents under the DHS authorized alternative procedure, employers must be enrolled in E-Verify, examine and retain copies of all documents, conduct a live video interaction with the employee, and create an E-Verify case if the employee is a new hire. Employees who were already participating in E-Verify may choose to use the new alternative procedure starting on August 1, 2023, but employers who are not enrolled in E-Verify must complete an in-person physical examination by August 30, 2023. Starting on November 1, 2023, all employers must start to use the new form I-9. And the WCIRB has released its 2023 State of the System report, which highlights key metrics of the California workers' compensation system, including the latest trends on rates, market characteristics, and profitability. Some of the key findings show that the system has continued to move forward into the post-pandemic era, as premium levels increased by 14% in 2022, and it is forecast to be above the pre-pandemic level in 2023. But current charge rates are at the lowest level in more than 50 years, and average insurer manual rates are significantly above the rates charged to employers, indicating that insurers are, on average, applying significant pricing discounts to their filed rates. Claim frequency is generally returning to pre-epidemic levels, pre-pandemic levels, <clears throat> and the WCRB forecasts an average annual decrease in claim frequency of about 1% from 2022 to 2025, in line with the pre-pandemic rate of decline. The share of indemnity claims involving cumulative trauma cases in 2021 is consistent with the pre-pandemic level after a sharp increase in 2020, with a vast majority of continuous trauma claims coming from the Los Angeles Basin and San Diego. And about 40% of them are filed following termination of the employee. Average indemnity claim costs continue to increase, primarily driven by increasing average wage levels, and average medical claim costs remain relatively flat. But medical legal costs continue to increase following implementation of the April 1, 2021 medical legal fee schedule.
To access the full report, please visit the research section of the WCIRB website. And the U.S. workers' compensation insurers were able to underwrite profitably between 2019 and 2022, according to a new report by the Insurance Information Institute, III. NCCI's chief, advac- uh, chief actuary said, overall, they see a healthy and strong workers' compensation system, and Britain premiums have returned to pre-pandemic levels. And nationally claims frequency has resumed a long-term average decline. Since 2014, national workers' compensation insurers cumulatively saw a net combined ratio of below 100. And since 2017, that figure has consistently stayed below 90. Commercial lines achieved lower net combined ratios than personal lines in both 2021 and 2022, and that continued through at least 20, that is expected to continue at least through 2025. And workers' compensation had the lowest combined ratio nationally among major product lines in 2021 and 22. Claim frequency is the most cost driver in workers' comp, and it has been low averaging 3% declines annually over the last 20 years. Unlike claim frequency, medical and indemnity severity has increased about 60% over the past two decades. And in 2022, indemnity severity rose again 6%, and medical severity was up 5%. However, many states have medical fee schedules, reducing medical inflation, as insurers and medical providers set fixed prices for the services and products needed by injured workers. A new 93-page working paper written by researchers from UCLA and Stanford University documents for the first time the growing safety risks of excessive heat for U.S. workers in occupations and surprisingly, not just where the worker is mostly outside, but also when they work indoors. These researchers examined more than 11.1 million confidential records of workplace injuries in California from the Department of Workers' Compensation and combined that information with zip code level information on daily temperature on each case. They found that hotter temperatures significantly increase the likelihood of injury on the job. They say a day with high temperatures between 85 and 90 leads to a 5-7% to 7% increase in same-day injury risk relative to a day in the 60s. And a day above 100 leads to a 10-15% to 15% increase. And they found that higher temperatures also increase injuries in some industries where work typically occurs indoors. In manufacturing, for example, a day with highs above 95 increases injury risk by about 7% relative to a day in the low 60s. And in wholesale industries, the effect is nearly 10%. They also found that claims for many injuries not typically considered heat-related rise on hotter days, 
These include injuries caused by falling from heights, being struck by a moving vehicle, or mishandling dangerous machinery. And the increase in these numbers affects a wide range of body parts, suggesting that the mechanisms may not be limited to heat illnesses such as heat stroke or heat syncope. The risks are substantially larger, larger for men versus women, for younger versus older workers, and for workers at the lower end of the economic distribution. The researchers estimated that hotter temperature has caused about 20,000 injuries per year relative to hypothetical benchmarks in which all workers experience only optimal te temperatures. And they estimate that socioeconomic costs of these injuries are on the order of $525 million to $875 million per year, given the costs of health care, lost wages, and productivity, and other knock-on costs such as work disruptions and potential permanent disability. However, researchers also found evidence of significant adaptation percent potential, adaptation potential, as they noted that the effect of temperature on injuries falls significantly over time during the study period and coincides with the introduction of what was at the time the nation's first heat safety mandate, the California Heat Illness Prevention Standard back in 2005, which applied only to outdoor workplaces. This new California Heat Study Advisory Committee is set to use this data as part of a roadmap to tackle hot workplace issues. And in medical news, the American Hospital Association, or AHA, was founded in 1898 and is a not-for-profit association with nearly 5,000 member hospitals, health systems, and other healthcare organizations, and more than 270,000 affiliated physicians, 2 million nurses, and other caregivers. The AHA just released findings of three new surveys that examined how some commercial insurer practices impact the patient and provider healthcare experience. The surveys found that the vast majority of patients, nurses, and physicians say Insurer policies and practices are reducing access to medical care, driving up health care costs, and increasing clinician burden and burnout. The surveys found that most patients have had medical care delayed because of their insurance provider in the last two years, and nearly half of those patients say their health has gotten worse as a result. And most patients want their health care providers to determine what care they receive, not their insurance company. And nurses overwhelmingly believe insurance administrative policies delay patient care. About three in four nurses say it reduces the quality of care. And 63% say it interferes with a patient being transferred to the right care setting. Meanwhile, more than 80% of physicians said insurance practices and policies affect their ability to practice medicine. 
Overall, the increased insurance administrator requirements has taken a toll on clinicians, with 56% of nurses saying their job satisfaction has decreased because of it, and 84% of physicians said these policies make it difficult to operate a solo medical practice. Thus, the survey was unable to flesh out many of any involved groups who are satisfied with the effects of insurance involvement with health care. And finally, 16 California hospitals have now lined up for the California Distressed Hospital Loan Program. California passed Assembly Bill 112, known as the Distressed Hospital Loan Program, as an emergency statute in May of 2023 and it provides interest-free loans to not-for-profit and public hospitals who are in significant financial distress. The goal of this new program is to prevent hospital closures and to help California hospitals stay afloat while they work to improve their financial health. The new law appropriated $150 million for the loan program, and legislators and hospital administrators have acknowledged the loan program is only a stopgap for a number of hospitals that for months have warned of their precarious physical situations. And according to a report by inewssource.com, 16 facilities have applied so far for the newly created loan program, which had a deadline for applications by the end of July. They say the Madeira Community Hospital, which shut down earlier this year, but could reopen under new owners, has requested $80 million of the $150 million program alone. El Centro Regional Medical Center, which is Imperial County's largest hospital, is seeking a $40 million state loan in its latest attempt to keep its doors open. And the El Centro Regional Board members voted to apply for the program late last month. It is a city-owned 161-bed facility that has been struggling with rising costs and declining revenues since the COVID pandemic. And they already received $5 million loan from the state earlier this year. And its latest audit raised substantial doubt about whether it can continue operating because it lacked recurring income sufficient to meet its operating costs and its debt payments. And Pioneer's Memorial in Brawley has also faced financial problems, though not as severe as that of El Centro Regional. Residents in that county, one of the poorest in the state, would be forced to travel some two hours away if those facilities were not available. A report commissioned by the California Hospital Association earlier this year found that one in five hospitals is at risk of closing, and more than half are operating at a loss. The California Hospital Association therefore asked the state for $1.5 billion in one-time relief, a tough request in a state deficit financial year. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. 
And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcast on special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.